Welcome to Hot Off the Press, a podcast that provides knowledge and emotional support for new and aspiring printers. I'm Jillian of Studio Soprano. And I'm Mariah of Mariah Creates, and we are two letterpress printers who believe in sharing our knowledge and learning together. We're here to help bridge the gap between antique printing methods and modern design. So hang up your apron, put down those palette knives, and let's get into what's hot off the press. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Hot Off the Press. I am Mariah of Mariah Creates, and I'm here with the ever-enchanting Jillian of Studio Soprano. We've had some questions in our inboxes and submission boxes, so we wanted to tackle a few of them for you all. Um, A couple of them are duplicates, so it just reassures us that we need to talk about these. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we love helping other printers problem solve. In fact, this past week, we've like actually been in an email chain with one of our listeners who's having an inking issue and like collectively the three of us are trying to solve it. So like we really love doing that. It's actually how Hot Off the Press began because Mariah and I were contacting each other via DM to like frantically figure out different problems with our presses. So um, we love getting your questions and they can be very general. They could be specific to your press. Whatever you want to ask us, we'd be happy to answer. And so we we took a few of them and we're going to answer them in this episode. Yay. All right. Well, I guess we should just dive into it. So um, we'll start off with this one from uh, user card 1130. I love that you said user. <laughs> okay, fine. I don't know. I mean, how else? No, 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 no. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's like, it like is a throwback to like, like, yes, I don't know, AIM days or something. It felt very nostalgic. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So what press do you recommend for someone with very limited space and doing five by seven cards? Um, So this is a great question. We, so earlier on in our first season, we did a couple of episodes. One of them was about platen presses and one was about flatbed presses. We did cover a couple of different types of presses. So we highly recommend you give those a listen because we give you a lot of information and overview about like what those presses are best used for, their advantages, disadvantages, et cetera. Um, as someone who personally started off with a tiny little tabletop press, I have a Kelsey five by eight, um, which is just a tiny little tabletop platen press. That press, uh, was the first one I got because of that exact like scenario. I thought, okay, what's smallest, um, you know, I want to do like greeting cards and things like that. And can you do greeting cards, like a five by seven card with a five by eight tabletop press? Um, mm, uh, it depends on the design. <laughs> yeah. If if so, it's like if it's like a an image, like a small image centered on the card, then yes. like yeah, absolutely. But if you're do if you want to do like a border or something that actually goes across the whole five by seven. Yeah. So you're it, not gonna be able to fill a five by seven greeting card with a small tabletop press. Your impression is gonna get worse and worse with the larger area that you're trying to print, especially on a small press. But I think the rule is like a quarter of your pre- of your chase size is your printable area. Does that sound right to you, Jillian? Or maybe even a third. Yeah, let's say a third just to be safe if you really want to get crafty. Mm-hmm. Like let's say a third of what your chase size is is what you're gonna be able to print like all at once. So yeah, yeah. So you're gonna want to a bigger press in order to do an entire five by seven area. But, you know, Jillian and I have both, we both have, your Gordy is like eight by 12, right? Chase size? 
It is. And I just did the math. And so five by seven is really the biggest size that I could print on Gordy with like good impression. Um, yeah. Anything more than that, like six, six by nine is the size of my base. And if I had artwork that was the full size of my base, I usually have to cut it in half. Mm-hmm. So I did the math for that. And on an eight by 12 chase, a five by seven is one third of that size. So I do think yeah. that that's how that pans out. A good out. ratio. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess in short, like a limited space press, like there are golden pearls out there, which are, I think, one of the best like compact presses. They're taller vertically, but they only take up like three feet by three feet. Like as far as physical space, they're pretty small. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say compared to like a tabletop press, I would assume they give you a slightly better impression. Um, the golden pearls are very expensive, so that's something to consider. As far as tabletop presses go, I think the like the Chandler Price Craftsman presses are probably the best. Again, they're probably the most expensive of the tabletop presses, but you kind of pay for what you get, you know. I've seen people do really great work with Craftsman presses. Yeah. You can design your cards to make the most out of your space. So Yeah. Well, let's say you got a tabletop press and you're doing a 5 by 7 invitation. You could, like, split up the artwork so that you're maximizing like the best impression but the other thing you want to consider is that the inking can be inconsistent and so it it just requires like being a true artist on your machine and like how how are you controlling the ink levels so that if you did split up your invitation like I'm thinking of something that's like navy blue yeah and like you had to cut it in half. And so you want to make sure that the navy blue that you print on the top half matches the navy blue that you print on the bottom. And that sounds really easy when you're just saying it, but like in practice, it is really hard. Like I was printing black last week or yesterday and you would think like black is black. Black can't be anything other than black. Not true. It can be super black or it can be gray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if you're – if as soon – I notice that I re-ink my press more when I'm using black because the moment it even starts to pitter off, it is no longer black. It's gray. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's just those little nuances. But I would say – you know, you can never go wrong with getting a tabletop press. They're so easy to learn on. So yeah, easy they're to learn so on. easy to learn on. Like I really think that you can't go wrong. They're so hard to get hurt on, um, which is a great way to learn. And <laughs> it's 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 kind of a safe choice, if you will. I I do think that like even since I bought my tabletop presses a couple years ago, the prices have definitely gone up quite a bit. But I think that a tabletop press is a really great way to learn. It's a really great way to experiment with it. Um, and once you have the tabletop press and you get all the stuff and you start printing, then when you're ready to upgrade to a bigger press, you already have most of the equipment that you need. And that's a huge step up to begin with. So like, I don't know, I think a tabletop press was a valuable learning tool for me. And I do recommend to doing that to someone who's never printed before. Um, but no matter what, when you get into letterpress, it's an investment. So if you have the ability to get a platen, like a floor model platen press, um, then I would just go for it personally. But yeah. <laughs> I'm also speaking from years of doing that exact transition. So, you know, if you're getting into it and you're scared, I still say just like jump in because you won't regret going to a floor model press because you can do so much more. Um, but a tabletop is still a great way to learn. Yeah, I literally put my floor model press in my living room. 
at my apartment when I first got it. And there was a step up to get into the living room. So it's like you could be pretty creative with like where you put these things. Um, You just want to make sure that the structure of the floor is going to hold it up because I did think about that after the fact and I was like oh shit is this thing going to go through the floor yeah (laughs) but yeah so you could get creative and I mean ultimately our advice is think about like just consider the limitations of the machine as well as your space so like a tabletop is probably not like going to be super helpful for you if you're trying to run a fast-paced business because Mm -hmm. it's obviously the slowest um a floor model will help you for sure like pump out more prints per hour and whatever and better bigger prints and better quality prints and all that but yeah those are just things to consider yeah for sure hopefully that helps um but yeah it's very personally dependent and has a lot to do with what you plan to do with it so uh, we can only answer that question so much, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. So we have two episodes uh, on platen presses and flatbed presses in, ep- in season one, and we have a Heidelberg episode in season two. So hopefully that gives you a little insight into the different like pl- uh, big presses, and maybe you'll be convinced to just go for it. Uh, so that helps. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so funny if someone who had very limited space was just like, okay, I'll get a Heidelberg. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely not the one. But that's definitely not the one. Yeah, um, that's the, the least efficient on space. I So Jillian and I have presses that are very similar. Um, but when I first saw her press, I was like, oh, my God, your press is so small. Like It is I tiny. Th- I think that like having, you know, there's there's a difference between even like similar styles of presses. So just see it in person and see if you can commit to that amount of space and you know, figure out if you need to walk around all three sides, four sides, or if you can get away with kind of sneaking on the side of it. So that that'll help in the decision making too, depending on your space. Yeah. Okay. So I would say floor models like Golden Pearl, very expensive, but the sleekest, slimmest, tiniest for footprint. Yes. I don't know if there's anything between that and Gordy, but Gordy is also very small. Like, yeah really compact so a challenge gordon or you could look up sometimes they reverse it and call it a gordon challenge an eight by twelve it's like a it has a very pretty small footprint um in my opinion and it's um you know foot pedaled so it doesn't have like a motor it's not super loud or noisy and yeah i think it's a great press to start with if you could find one and then what were the tabletops that you recommended the challenge or the so the Pilot Press is what you're looking for, and it was created by Chandler and Price and then reproduced by Craftsman and Machinery later. So Pilot Press or Craftsman Pilot Press um, are some of the best tabletop presses. Awesome. And then what's the one you have, the Kelsey? Yep, I have a Kelsey Excelsior uh, 5x8, so that's what I have. Awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. So Yay. next. All right. All right, so our next question comes from Megan Garrison, and she asked us about duplexing, um, which, to be honest, we plan to do a full episode on duplexing because there's just so many things to go over and, like, personal stories of ours to share. Some bad, some good. A basic overview of what duplexing is is it's taking two different sheets and adhering them together to become one. So people usually do this if they want to go double the weight. So basically 110 pound times two is 220 pound. Um, 
or if they want the front to be one color and the back to be another color. And the key to duplexing is that you're taking two sheets and you're putting adhesive actually on both sheets, especially if you're using the spray adhesive method. Um, and then you're just lining them up and pressing them together. It doesn't take like a ton of pressure to get duplexing to work, especially with cotton papers, because they mm-hmm. just the fibers, I feel like just really get stuck to each other. Um, whenever I do my process, I literally, after putting the two sheets together and like rubbing it down with my hands, I lay it on a table and put like three textbooks on it and like done. So, so yeah, duplexing, um, there's going to be a lot of things that we could go into and like how we get the best results, how we avoid terrible results. Um, and, and yeah, so we'll do that, but Basically, if you want to duplex, you just need to take two sheets of any kind of paper, put adhesive on both, and then put them together and read the instructions on your adhesive. Some adhesives actually have to like air out before you put them together. Uh, And it just like creates a stronger bond. So yeah, that is like a really quick duplexing um, tidbit. Yeah, we'll we'll do a full episode in season three on some of our best practices, tips and tricks, because we've had some major successes and major failures with duplexing. So <laughs> <laughs> and FYI, whenever you buy 220 pound or 236 pound, that's all duplexed. Like yeah, double thick paper a- is truly two pieces of paper adhered together. And it's yes. usually done by the manufacturer. But like when you get double thick, like printed digitally, it's usually double, like it's usually duplexed after printing. So that's something that a lot of people don't know. Um, yeah. That double thick paper is truly just two pieces adhered. Yeah. Like I'm sure there's, I'm sure out there in the world, there are commercial printers who print on double thick paper, but um, you'd be surprised that almost everyone is actually printing on single ply and then duplexing it later, which means that they do have a really good system of making sure that that front and that back page align because yeah. that's when you're running into issues. If you have print on both sides and you have to line that up, woo baby, you better yeah. have a system because yeah. a lot of human error could go into that. Yeah, even just the tiniest bit. And like the hard thing about duplexing when it's printed on both sides is that you if you like when you go to cut a whole stack of them after they're duplexed if one of them is incorrect it's going to be ruined you know so it's like that's I think where the the big trickiness comes in is like if you're trying to cut stacks um Mm -hmm. yeah so anyway cool so this one I we both had a good laugh at this so this is from Maisie Rose and she said no question but why is illustrator so hard (laughs) Uh, we basically can only provide emotional support there and let you know that you're not alone. Um, so Julia and I both have backgrounds with Adobe in various like aspects. So I grew up like my teenage years using Photoshop a lot Mm -hmm. and I was in yearbook, you know, so I used Photoshop a lot as like a teenager. Um, and so when I like grew up and started using Adobe again, I was mostly using InDesign and then eventually I rolled into Illustrator when working more on like stationary and things. So I have more experience than some of the other programs. Now, if you ask me to use Photoshop, I would be like, yeah, no, thank you. I'm lost. <laughs> Illustrator is my main tool now and it has been for years. So it's where I'm most comfortable aside maybe in design, but they're both very similar. So 
Illustrator is hard for certain things and I feel like there's like definitely best practices for Illustrator. You all like everyone learns their own like tips and tricks and like their little shortcuts for doing certain things. But um, Jillian and I were just talking about this and I think that the ironic thing is that Illustrator is really hard for actual illustrations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have the same trajectory. I started in Photoshop. Then because of interior design presentations, they had to be in InDesign. And then when I started getting into invitations, I started using Illustrator. But I was very reluctant. Like I would do as much as I could in Photoshop and then would like pull it all over and redo the text so that I can outline it in Illustrator. And like I would just add a new skill. Like every single time I used it, I would add a new skill. So when I first started using the program, it was literally just to turn text into outlined vectors. Oh, like well. that was it. Yeah. And then I was like, well, what if I want to do this like cool shape thing? And so then I just slowly started figuring it out. And YouTube is your best friend. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, it seems hard and intimidating because there are so many things that you could do in Illustrator, but you don't need to do all those things. You just need to do like one or two things or maybe three things. And then you'll add and you'll add like, there's a lot of resources and it's, it's just a program that has a shit ton of stuff packed into it. So that's why it's so seemingly hard. But it yeah. actually, once you learn the other thing, side tangent, it really, <laughs> really freaking annoys me that Adobe did not streamline certain like short keys or functions or even just like menus throughout yeah. all of their programs. I agree. Like they make it so hard to transition. Yes. When you're bouncing between Illustrator and InDesign, Shit's all over the place. There's like none of it's the same. It's so frustrating. I think it's really ironic given the fact that Adobe created the PDF, which was meant to be universal, right? And then they took their multiple programs and made them all completely not translate to each other. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Even even PDFs. Like, if you save a PDF in InDesign and open it in Illustrator, it doesn't translate properly. And it's like, you created this. This was your universal answer. Like, what? Um, yeah. yeah. So we share in the Adobe frustration in general. I think that we all have our comfort programs. So like Maisie Rose probably is more comfortable in another program. And so Illustrator seems really hard. Whereas we like, if I go into Photoshop, I'm like, oh God, why is Photoshop so hard? Like, I think we all have our little comfort zones, you know, and you get used to it. But Jillian and I absolutely still YouTube and video and Google search things all the time, all yeah. the time, literally and- all the time. Lainey, who we had on the podcast earlier this season, she has amazing videos. So she has stuff on YouTube and she does like an Adobe Illustrator. She does like an Adobe t- tip of the week, I feel like. Yeah. Isn't that a thing? Yeah. Don't I see her do that? I think you're right. And regardless, yeah. she has like all of the things you need to know to make stationery available. So um highly recommend checking out any of her resources but her youtube channel is like the best place to start i think i've watched almost all of her youtube videos at this point um (laughs) yeah even the ones i like know how to do i'm like well maybe laney knows a better way which she usually does so um yeah so emotional support for you lazy rose yeah we can relate um, yeah and you're not alone so hopefully it gets easier (laughs) not at all yeah 
All right, um, so next one for calligraphers. So how to write for letterpress? Are hairline strokes a no? This is from Clover Calligraphico. So um, I've recently, I've been working with a local station, local to me stationer. Um, she does calligraphy. And so I've been digitizing some of her artwork for letterpress lately. And I think she's a really great example because she has a really fine calligraphy style. There's a lot of hairlines. There's a lot of finer strokes. Um, so if you're digitizing any kind of calligraphy for vectorizing for letterpress example um you are like are hairline strokes a no i would say no they're not a no um they are going to be harder to fine tune and you really have to make sure they're perfect um when you're ordering letterpress plates your plate maker is going to have a minimum line weight so that line weight will determine how fine those hair strokes will end up being, but you can totally manipulate that on the digital end um, as far as getting the calligraphy into the system and getting it into vector form. Gretchen's style is really fine, like I mentioned, and like what I love about it is that when I letterpress print it, so I'll show, I'll maybe post an example um, if that's okay with her, I'll have to check first, but she has some really great illustrations and things that are super cute and they're oh, like... You know, she has some of these like scratchier strokes in some of the things like little drawings. And I always love when I can really fine tune them in a vector. And like the letterpress actually has, it looks like it has that scratchy, like a little bit of like speckling and like peppering that is from the actual calligraphy itself, you know? Like mm -hmm. I love when you can actually capture some of that scratchiness and print it because it looks so cool. So I think it really depends on the style of calligraphy, you know? Like, bigger fatter lines are going to be easier to scan and vectorize and all of that but i don't know i personally really love to see some of that like scratchiness come through on the letterpress when it's printed um and as far as hairline strokes you're ultimately going to have to make it the whatever weight minimum you need for your letterpress plates uh so they may not be as fine as your actual calligraphy but they're pretty close. I think they're pretty close. Um, yeah. I definitely have recently printed a job that had incredibly fine hairline strokes. Um, it wasn't hand calligraphy, though, that was digitized, which I actually think this is really interesting because when I read this question, I started to think about that font that I used and I was like, oh, I got a really fine hairline. Um, but as you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that when you have fine hairlines and you scan it in, like some of the integrity of that, like changes and shifts because it's like actual calligraphy that's being scanned in. Yeah. So this job, it came out really beautifully. However, the job right before that was half on letter, half done letterpress and half done with foil. And the mm. foil did not work. So you really want to think about your applications and it's all going to come down to the limitations of the plates that are being made and the process yeah. that's being used. And so you can always um, ask ahead of time or if you're sending artwork that has some pretty thin hairlines, I would just point out to whomever you're ordering through that like, hey, I'm not actually sure if these thin lines are going to work. Can you double check for me? Yeah. Or can you let me know what the minimum should be? And then what I do is I literally draw a single line. Of whatever your plate minimum is. Yeah. I give it the plate minimum. And then I go around like word to word and make sure that nothing is smaller than that yeah. stroke. 
And if you're working with um, Concord Engraving, Shelly is super helpful with double checking your work and making sure that things are going to actually translate to plates. Um, so if your plate maker is anything like them, they should be able to look at that and, and double check the strokes for you too, or give you some advice or let you know if something is going to be too thin or get dropped off, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Um, okay. So one other thing I want to say is that like, if you are scanning in calligraphy, like, and digitizing it for letterpress, um, I always, I always ask Gretchen and, and my clients to do it in black ink on really like, like crisp white paper. There's a lot of ways you can manipulate all of that stuff once you scan it in, um, but scan it in at high resolution. Some people like to go into Photoshop, remove the background, do all of that stuff, go into Illustrator, then image trace it, but you'll figure out your own process that works best. But um, I would say starting with black ink on white paper is going to be a huge help with your digitizing any kind of calligraphy. Agreed. Final yeah. final point. <laughs> okay. it's, it's been a long time since I've done that, but yes. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of it lately and I love it. Nice. Yeah, because Jillian and I mostly, we both do most of our calligraphy on iPads now. We have our like Procreate pens and things that we like. And I, that process has become mindless to me. Like it takes me two and a half seconds to digitize that and make it into a vector. So yeah. when you're, you know, it's kind of a different form to go from actual pen and paper to vector for letterpress at this point. But um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of it lately. So it feels fresh. So good timing for your, for your question. Uh, calligraphy. <laughs> I think that's Kelly, right? Her name is Kelly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is what's the best spacing away from your image crop marks to ensure that you don't end up with any remnants after cutting? And this is a really good question. This comes in from Posey Letterpress. Whenever I use the Illustrator crop marks, they kind of just auto pop up about a quarter inch away from your artboard. Um, And that's in both directions. So the sides are a quarter inch away and then the top and bottom ones are a quarter inch away. Um, I will actually move those closer to my artwork because I want to make sure that the crop marks aren't actually going off the edge of my base because that could cause other Mm. issues. So I'll usually move them a little closer. But here's the thing. If If your crop marks are both like any bit of distance away from your artboard, you shouldn't be getting them when you do your final cut down. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say, so like, I I think it depends on how you cut it. So what I do with crop marks, because I think what you're intended to do is cut like in a rotational, right? So like, you're going to cut the first side, you're going to cut the top, you're going to cut the right side, you're going to cut the bottom. Like, so hypothetically, if you cut that way, you shouldn't actually have any of your crop marks left, no matter how close or far apart they are. Um, Hypothetically. (laughs) So that being said, obviously, that doesn't always happen. um, But I think that if that's not happening, and if you're ending up with crop mark left on your final cut, then you've missed it. You've messed up a cut somewhere along the line. Um, Right. I think that- Or I wonder if possibly, like- instead of using crop marks, they have like a border of some sort that they're cutting off of. But either way, yeah, either way, your crop mark should always just be, I mean, they could be a 16th inch away from your artwork. And you still shouldn't end up with any left on your final cut. Yeah. 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 Um, So I would assume that 
I mean, personal experience, I've done this where I've had crop mark left and I'm like, damn, I messed up somewhere. You know, it's like, because also when you have like a stack you're cutting, which I would guess is probably how this is happening. You're, if you have one that's printed slightly off, it's not going to line up with the rest of them, you know? So like if you're measuring Mm -hmm. off the top copy, but the second piece below it is slightly off, then they're not, that one's going to have crop marks left. So, um, if you're cutting stacks and you have crop marks left, it's because your printing is inconsistent. If you're cutting one at a time and your crop marks are left after you're done cutting, you probably messed up a cut. Um, yeah. But I guess if you left more room, that would give you a little more room for error. So I will say it's so frustrating when you have these crop marks on all four sides. And then as soon as you cut off one side, you're missing two crop marks. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I kill it. I still like can't figure out. There's got to be a better way, right? Like, <laughs> like there's no good way to do it. Like, like a mid a mid piece crop mark, like like right in the middle of each piece or something. I like can't. There has to be a better way. Um, like, what if we do yeah. one flat line, like a parallel line? Like, what if it was like this? I'm showing Juliet on the camera, but yeah. What if it was like a crop mark? Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's gotta be. So then way. that would that would be one that you would get, you would get it on your final print if you didn't cut it all off. You know exactly. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we need we need some photo examples. Feel free to send them to us. <laughs> yeah. I I am in general frustrated whenever I have to use crop marks and I avoid it at all costs. And right after we recorded our episode on crop marks, (laughs) I had worked on a job that needed it because it had a full bleed pattern off all four edges. So they had to be printed on a larger sheet of paper. And it's just not my happy place. It's not Gordy's happy place. It's not my happy place because when you go down to cut that, like, I was really unsatisfied with the first stack of cuts I I did. And since I'm using my hydraulic cutter, I'm cutting like 25 sheets at a time. Yeah. So then I had to go and reprint another 25 because I was like, these are technically okay, but I'm not satisfied with them. So yeah, I fully agree. Um, Crop marks can, I mean, obviously they're there for a purpose, but it's really hard to, I think it's really hard to cut down after printing. Um, I think that is like a huge challenge for, and I don't think that's like, like that's any type of printing in-house. Like if you're digitally printing in-house, if you're doing letterpress printing, um, even if you're using a freaking Heidelberg, you're still going to have a couple copies that are slightly off or a lot of copies depending on your print method. And I just think that like inevitably something is going to be misaligned with the other prints, you know, like there's going to be a set of those that are not aligned perfectly with the other ones um yeah so and this I I feel like this we're really talking to the printers who are like us who are operating a small home-based business Mm because I do feel like when you have more industrialized equipment like yes there's there's always room for error but yeah it gets closer and closer to being perfect um right now I can tell you I'm so excited that my paper cutter and the press are about to be in the same room because I know ex- I know exactly what I would have done for that project differently, which is I would have printed the border, then cut them down, then printed the letterpress yes. text yeah. because the border is harder to tell if it's not perfectly centered or if it's not perfectly like, you know, um, straight because it is uh, it was a blind pass. But the letterpress text, like, that's going to throw a red flag, like, immediately to your eyeball. So, yeah, I 
I just hate cutting shit down, man. Yeah. I it's, hate it. It's really hard. I think, I yeah, I really think that like the end all be all, like a lot of issues that I've had with printing have to do with cutting after printing. Um, yeah. Printing on final size is so much easier in so many ways. There's so let so much because the thing with letterpress is like, other than actually misfeeding the paper, it's going to be very consistent. Whereas like your digital printer is, is going to just like every other one is going to be slightly different. Like it's just, there's no it, rhyme or reason for it. Yeah. I, I went through um, a stack of envelopes. So I had a client who um, we printed her RSVP envelopes and after the fact, realized that the unit number was not on there. So then I had to go in and we didn't have enough like envelopes to reprint the whole thing. So I was like, what if we just like added it on to the bottom? The post office man is going to figure it out. Yeah. Well, from doing that, I mean, it was nuts how I'd be feeding the envelopes in exactly the same way as they were fed in before. And the range of degrees of difference from envelope to envelope was wild. Just yeah. absolutely wild. Digital printers, unless they are commercial printers, are utter shit when it comes to <laughs> being able to print something consistently the same sheet to sheet. Just like Seriously. the worst, hands down, they should all be fired yeah. from their jobs. They do not do them well. Yeah, like the feeds on like digital printers are super like janky. So do not recommend. <laughs> don't don't recommend. Um, but yeah, so cutting cutting down after the fact gives me so much anxiety. You know what it is? It's a whole other art form. It's a whole skill. And I think that as self-taught printers, we take it for granted that each part, each little phase of completing a job is a trade in and of itself. You know, like if you have someone who's adding edge painting, doing that kind of stuff is a trade in and of itself. Like that's a whole other skill. It's not as easy as just like, oh, one, two, three, or I'm going to go buy this machine. And so now I can do this. It'd be so nice if it was that easy. I know. So <laughs> even if even if you buy the duplexer, the uh, there's a good one. Pot Devon. The Pot Devon. Even if you go buy the Pot Devon. Being able to align and register and all of that, that is a whole other set of skills that you need to develop. So practice it. Take some scrap paper. Like Be prepared to mess up royally. Be prepared to mess up royally. <laughs> Actually practice these skills the same way that you practice letterpress. I've been doing it with my cutting. Um, the digital dial on my paper cutter is off and I wanted to see like how off it was. And I figured out that it's off by three thousandths of an inch so but by doing that only Jillian would even notice that by the way <laughs> but by doing that I can like thank you I can add three thousands every time so it's like if I want to cut a five by seven it's 5.03 and 7.03 you know just saying everything is a skill and you have to practice them and it won't always go as planned that's for sure it, like I yeah it won't always go as planned absolutely will not Anyway, let us know about your crop marks. Send a photo. We can help you out. <laughs> yeah, we love, we love it. So I please. went on 17 tangents. I'm not going to lie. I was really upset about because those prints look so good. And then I freaking cut them and I didn't like them. It just. Yeah. Ugh. Um, Julie and I both have had the exact same scenario with that exact same <laughs> process lately. So 
hitting a little bit home for us. Um, and yeah, we sympathize. It just, it is hard. It's really hard to cut after printing and that's where I will leave it. Um, it's very difficult. It adds a huge level of possible error. And sometimes you just have to scrap that whole pile and start over. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. This is why we say add 20% to every step you're going to do. Yep. If you are digitally printing, add 20%. Now you're, you're going to letter then? press it, yeah. add another 20%. I'm going to start adding a process for cutting after printing as well, like, or extras for cutting after printing. Right. Like, so you add a pro- you add 20 for printing digitally, you add 20 for cutting it after printing digitally, and then another 20 for the letter press, and maybe you'll have enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you think, you think we're exaggerating, and we're not. And it's like – and it's – I think that's actually not just a small printer problem because – I have been in print shops and I'm literally watching their press like do something wrong and nobody caught it. And I'm like, great. So like 80 of those just got messed up. So now you're just going to like reprint 80 of them. Yeah. You know what I would like to hear? And if anyone listening has either if you're part of a larger printing company or if you have a printing company you work with that's told you this, I want to know what large companies think the margin for error is. Like if you order a hundred of something, how many should you expect to be perfect? Because I've seen so many comments where people received like from large printing companies, like a certain number were messed up or crooked or whatever, and the printing company refuses to do any kind of thing about that. So I want to know what the standard for margin for error is for large printing companies, because I feel like it's probably more than we would think. Like what they think is appropriate is probably way less than what we all think is appropriate. So I'd be curious if anyone knows any answers to that. Right. Yeah. I'm also curious about like how they calculate doing extras. Yeah. Because I was thinking about this exact problem the other day and was like, it sounds crazy, but I need to order 50 extra sheets of paper to do this job. And because it just had a lot of parts and pieces to it. And when all was said and done, I had two extras left. Like in my head, I was like, all right, I'm going to eat the cost for these, but it's going to save my ass in the long run. And I'm going to end up with so many extra samples and I'm going to be able to hand these suckers out and be like, look at all the crazy (laughs) cool things I could do. There were two left and they weren't even (laughs) two. They weren't even two really good ones. So I'm never going to send them out to anyone else. Like, yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. I, I really wonder like what the like what the wiggle room is um yeah okay we need to keep moving let's see what's next on our list here so uh this one we saw actually in a facebook group we thought it'd be a good one to talk about um there was somebody who had a can of silver ink from you know 20 years ago uh that was separated they wondered if they could use it should they stir it up um or not and so jillian and i are definitely not ink experts we did have charlie from southern ink on and he is an ink expert so you can go listen to that episode if you want to hear a little more about this subject because we definitely do talk about it there um but from our experience i would say stir it up (laughs) stir it up and try it out Um, I actually have a box of inks that I got with one of my presses that are possibly from somewhere between, I think the sixties based on the packaging and all of that, but maybe the eighties. Um, so they're at least 30 years old or more. And I had a tube of silver ink in there, which was so totally separated. Um, I pulled it out, I mixed it up. I mixed it up on the ink palette or on my, my glass palette and it was totally fine. It printed, it was beautiful. It's silver, it's shiny. It's great. 
Um, I even sent Jillian some of that and you used it as well, right? Yep. Yeah. So I think that like, I mean, I think that you should try it. I wouldn't just throw it away because it's separated. I do think like the oil uh, based inks are going to separate no matter what they were like the metallic inks were originally, and I think they still are sold as two parts. So like your base and then your pigments, so you can mix them up as you need them. But hypothetically, I think the silver could like oxidize and it'd be maybe like a little less bright or a little less metallic, but I haven't seen that in any of the inks that I've tried personally. So, yeah. And, um, here's the thing. Like if you got a can of old ink, I mean, it either is trash or it's not. And there's only one way to find out, right? Like, otherwise you're just continuing to hold on to like, the expired ink but it can oxidize technically or I think some people call it burn I'm not really sure why it doesn't catch on fire so I feel like burn is not the right term for that yeah I think they literally mean oxidation yeah oxidation makes sense to me and yes silver in particular is really interesting silver could be kind of volatile um in certain conditions or just like really well scientifically predictable but to those who don't know the science unpredictable um and yeah they were often sold in a paste and then like a a base that you would mix it with but I say just try it I mean either way you're either gonna have good it's not gonna ruin your press I I can't see a reason how I mean unless you had a press that's really hard to clean but if you're using like a platinum platinum press press, throw it on there see what happens yeah (laughs) throw it on there see what happens and don't sue us if you do that and something goes (laughs) we take no responsibility (laughs) for what happens but we We, have we would do it here's the thing if you're too afraid (laughs) send it to us and we'll put it on our press (laughs) yeah seriously there you go our presses are our presses are absolute guinea pigs i wrote down a list of experiments that i want to do so i could report back to everyone on the pod and one of them was like i'm gonna clean with this solution for six months and tell you what happens and then i'm gonna do this and like of these things some of them can actually harm gordy but like I'm really curious like I'm curious to know because there's so many people who will say like no you can't do that and I'm like but scientifically why yeah like, give me a good reason like show me the show me the math show me the science yeah um, but yeah so just gonna try some out and we'll see how it goes and you know everyone say prayers for Gordy <laughs> pray to Lord <laughs> Lord with an E yep um all right last one or no, second to last one. Okay, so uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I got this one. Mm-hmm. Another one from a Facebook group. How hard is it to switch from letterpress to die cutting onto Chandler and Price? It's set up to letterpress, but I'm dying to die cut myself. Should I just do more research? Is it worth doing it using one machine or basically would she need another one? Uh, she plans on, I'm just assuming this is she because I'm all about females in, in print land. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, I feel like men don't ask questions. No, that's <laughs> sexist. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was incredibly sexist. Groups, I don't. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, all right. Mm, anyway, she'd be running it. <laughs> she'd be using it for small runs of a hundred or less. This question actually resonates so freaking much with me because from the moment I got Gordy, I wanted to die cut and I was so terrified, especially because I found the websites where you would order like a dye jacket and stuff and they're just so 
old looking and you like almost have to email someone to be like, hey, Make I sure want. it's not a scam or that they still exist or. Yes. Yeah. And like, yeah. hey, I'm, I'm looking for like you can't just check out. It was so weird. So anyway, I got really off put by that. I was really nervous. Then I read more about it and it sounded like you had to do so much work to set it up. And then we watched Cara Jo get her press. <laughs> and within like a week, that girl had been die cutting and doing all kinds of cool stuff. And I was like, what the hell, man? Like, th- it looked so easy. So yeah. I said to Mariah. She made it look really easy. <laughs> yeah. I, I said to Mariah, it. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I had this client who they weren't happy with – um the results of drag knife cutting. So basically like a cricket or an industrial cricket and they really wanted something to be die cut. So I just said, okay. And I ordered the die literally first time I'm going to use it. And I'm doing it on a client project that had a deadline and it took me maybe 40 minutes to set up the press and cut out all the things I had to cut. <laughs> Including cutting. <laughs> Including cutting. It was it was an incredibly easy, easy thing to do. Okay, yeah. so here here's just my quick breakdown of that too. So Mariah was kind enough to send me a dye jacket. Unfortunately, the dye jacket was larger than the like area that I have. Um, and again, this goes back to Gordy just being smaller. So like I could not get the dye jacket to stay down. So I had like tied it up with string and used like super glue and all this other stuff to like hold it down. LOL. This is the first time I'm hearing this to you guys. Like I sent her this dye jacket and never heard this story. So it was It was so funny. Okay, so once I got that set up, that was a majority of the time. After that, um, it just so happened that the packing that I had been using for the printing prior was a good distribution to, like, cut. I just took out, like, a few of the thicker sheets that I usually use to, like, build up the impression. Um, So basically, I just had, like, the topography type of thing where, like, one corner needs more packing. Yeah. I just slid that thing right under there. And boom, it was fine. And I was going to town and I basically was able to cut like a hundred little cards in a matter of minutes. It was crazy. I texted her. I didn't tell you about all the other stuff, but I texted you right after and I was like, I am slightly devastated about how easy this was. I do remember that. Yeah. You were like, um, I think it's one of those things where like you're afraid to mess up your machine. And so you yeah. just overthink everything. And then you read Facebook comments where printers <clears throat> are like super rude and like, oh, well, you got to do this and that and this and that. And it's like, okay. And so, you know, it's like a little bit of this like fear kind of builds and you're not confident in it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you end up overthinking it for years at a time. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it was so easy. Um, Even getting the dye was super easy. I got it in like four days. It was really incredible. Yeah. I think we were both surprised by how quick the dyes get made as well um yeah so yeah i think just get a dye jacket and order the dye and then try it out just make sure to take your rollers off and make sure you're not going to mess up your platen you have the dye jacket in place and and try it out see what happens just go slow you could um you could also go to lowe's or home depot and just buy a small sheet of spring steel um and cut it down if you have any tools to do that or ask a friend or maybe ask one of the people at home depot like 
how you could have this cut down. But like a little sheet of spring steel is really all you need um, if you don't want to buy like an exact die jacket. And then you could just use um, tape to tape it on. Uh, it's extremely effective. <laughs> and if you do want to buy a die jacket, um, you can look at our letterpress resource like our supply yep. guide which is a huge resource we have not only vendors for dyes but also for dye jackets in there so um if you want to purchase a legit jacket and if you need dyes made we have several vendors listed for that so yeah great yay all right so last one here is kind of it's from one person um this is from sweet and southern so they wrote in and said hi i just started following and i'm so excited to go through all your posts and podcasts i saw you had a q a story so i thought of a question to ask if this isn't if it isn't already in some of your previous posts that i haven't gotten to yet um i acquired a cnp 10 by 15 platinum press last year and haven't used it yet i feel stuck before even starting i've done a good bit of research but because of these things i never felt confident to actually start learning hands-on so totally relatable. We've all been there. Um, it's very intimidating, <laughs> the research, if you haven't printed, you know, and the research almost makes it more scary. It's kind of the like, research makes it worse. I'm not going to yeah. lie. The research makes it worse because you hear like you just see things and words that you don't understand and all this stuff. And it's so scary. Yeah, it can be. So definitely just jump in. You're probably like you're probably further along than you really think you are. Um, and okay, so her first question is, I think I need a video of how to oil the machine. I found the original diagram of the ports, but some of them are hard to make out. How much oil is needed at each application point? What kind of oil? Um, how do I keep from, from destroying my garage floor? We also got a question about how often we should oil presses uh, from Birdsong Bespoke, Birdsong Bespoke, but oh my God, Birdsong Bespoke as well. So this is a big question. So let's break it down. So how often do you need to oil your press? So Jillian, I think you oil every time you print, right? Yep. Which is yeah. a different answer than I gave at the beginning of our podcast. I think I told you <laughs> yeah. that I did it like once a month. And yeah. then I had just been doing more and more and more research. And I was like, you know what? It's not hard for me to oil it. And if there is any reason that I should, then I just should. So now I do a very small drop of oil across all the holes every time I print. Yeah. And then I I would say I probably have been oiling up like once a week and I'll print like three days on that. Um, so I think that you'll find a good routine for yourself, but I don't really think that you like you can over oil. Yes, but you can't oil too often. So I would say like you're better off putting a little bit of oil in more often or like then doing a lot of oil at one time less often. So just go through and do a tiny bit of oil whenever you get a chance to, or if you're going to go print, just do it. Um, and again, making sure you're not over oiling, but I really think that like a little bit of oil more often is probably for the best. So whatever that yeah. looks like for you is going to, is going to vary. Um, so yeah. I oil about every, like, let's say a thousand impressions. How does that sound? So that sounds like an official answer. So <laughs> as far as finding all the ports. So if you have the original diagram of all the ports, then you've got your guide right there. You're set. Some of them may be hard to make out on your press. Um, I painted mine with bright pink nail polish. Originally my Chandler and Price has like red original paint around some of the oil ports. Uh, my Heidelberg has green, yellow, and red ports because they're different. Uh, how often you're supposed to oil those particular things are different. So your press probably has some kind of identifier for the oil places. 
if it doesn't, paint your own. I put literally neon pink nail polish on mine because I like pink. Um, pick whatever color you want. Pick an original color, whatever works. And count them and then keep searching until you count them all. And I think generally a rule of thumb with machinery is like any place that metal touches metal, right? Like anytime, anytime there's a part that moves and oil and metal touches metal is where you should either oil or grease it up. So um, general rule of thumb, that would apply. Uh, la 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 la. There was a couple in there. Okay. What, so, what kind of oil? Yeah. So what kind of oil is going to vary depending on who you ask? That's definitely something where I've seen about every possible answer. Um, and even Jillian and I, I think, use different oils, don't we? Yep. Yes. I use motor oil um, and I use a 40 weight oil. So like when you see it at the store, it's like, I think it's like 1040W or something like that. But I use like car oil and I use 40 weight. And that is something that I had read and found and thought would work. Um, (laughs) Is it the right answer? Don't know. Have no clue if that's the right answer. But it is the answer that I have found and it is what I have (laughs) used and it has done me no wrong yet. I have a little tiny oil can and the oil and I just top off the oil can and I use that. That being said, I you should use grease on the cranks, the, the gears, the gears, the gears, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was thinking about that the other day. I have never re-greased anything. Should should that be a thing? Yeah, pretty sure that should be a thing. Um I don't know about the regularity of greasing things. I should text Paul Frank right now because that that man would know. So what I do want to do is I want to read off the lubricating instructions for my Heidelberg because it's on a little placard, which is amazing. And I think Mm -hmm. this will answer some general questions for us. So la 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 la. All right. So lubricating instructions for the Heidelberg that I have. For the central lubrication system, it has like a central line system, so you can just put oil in it and it lubricates all the interior parts. Um, Yeah, amazing, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We're going to skip this part, but use only highest quality lubricating oil with a viscosity stable 650 second at 100 degree Fahrenheit. I have no idea what that means. Oils of low (laughs) viscosity as well as lubricating grease are unsuitable, should not be used. So no grease on that one. Fair enough. It's like an oil system. So you're like, that would be illogical anyway to put like a paste in there. Um, Low viscosity though. So um, they, here's what they recommend. This is from 1958. So take it with a grain of 1958. But Shell Companies, (laughs) Shell Vitrea Oil 69. From Mobile Oil Companies, the Mobile Vactra Oil Extra Heavy. From Esso Petroleum Company Limited, Milcott K55. <laughs> is that helpful? Mariah, I don't know. Mariah is giving me the little emoji of the girl with her hands up being like, mm, like I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, the thing that I will say that is reassuring about this is that my mobile, my uh, motor oil that I'm using sounds correct. So that's great. <laughs> Yeah. As far as the viscosity goes, so when I was doing my initial research, I chose the 40 weight based on like some research that I had done and other comments and things. Um, but I will say like uh, for a platen press, like when you're not looking at like, it's all very like obvious parts. They're all right in front of you. Um, it's different than the Heidelbergs. I would say that like with a, a platen press, like, like what I have is you're not going to probably have as much of an issue with a lower viscosity or higher viscosity. Like you could probably use either and be just fine. Um, with a lower viscosity oil, you're going to probably need to oil more often. So I would say like, just consider that when you're deciding what oil to use. Right. Am I wrong? I I honestly have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I really don't. Yeah. 
All right. Yeah, so the three, I use a three-in-one. Again, found that online because here's the thing. The basic answer to your question is the reason that there are so many answers online is because there are so many different things you can use. Like yeah. the motor oil or I use a multi-purpose oil, they aren't directly going to damage your press because they were all made for the same thing to lubricate. The question is, are you getting peak performance? So for certain machines like the Heidelberg, some of the specs that you read were like the oil has to perform under certain like heat conditions or like temperatures and whatever. And that's because those machines are going to get really hot. They're like they have a lot of moving parts causing a lot of friction, all this stuff. They're running at 4,000 or plus impressions an hour, whereas our platinum presses are doing like 300 probably. Yeah. So um, with the way that you're running your Chandler and Price, um, if you have a motor, maybe you could start researching on like what types of oils are good for like the speeds of your motor. Um, But honestly, I think any of the suggestions you see out there are just fine. I use this little tiny bottle of three-in-one multi-purpose oil. It lubricates. It like protects against rust and it comes in this like tiny bottle with a little spout that perfectly fits in all my oil holes and it's great (laughs) and I haven't had a single problem with the metal the moving metal components on Gordy that has never been a problem for me yep agreed agreed completely except for Uh except for my ink disc which um, basically stopped moving. And I realized that was because the vegetable oil gets sticky. And like, I didn't even realize the vegetable oil was getting down in that area. So I have now switched over to the baby oil that Mariah uses because when baby oil sits, it doesn't get sticky like vegetable oil does. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the vegetable oil does break down the ink quicker so, like, you could use it if you wanted to be really careful, but you don't want any of the vegetable oil to get in any of your moving parts because it just makes yeah. them not move anymore. Yeah, that is another interesting thing with, like, cleaning and stuff, which is actually uh, on our list here. So um, let's skip to number three here. So is cleaning up with mineral spirits okay? Again, lots of mixed opinions. And, yeah, that's one of the things we always talk about in this podcast is that everywhere you look, you're going to get four different answers for whatever question you have. So it's totally up to you. Cleaning with mineral spirits. I use odorless mineral spirits when switching from like a dark color to a light color or when I really want to make make sure it's super clean. Um, so yeah, you could totally use mineral spirits. It has to do more with, I think, like your ventilation and disposing of towels, that kind of thing. I like to use baby oil to clean my press. Uh, Jillian used to use vegetable oil, sometimes uses vegetable oil now. Um, so <laughs> everyone has a different preference. I just like the smell of baby oil. I like the feel of it. I sometimes throw it on my hands to get ink off. Like I really like baby oil in general. It's inexpensive, easy to come by, very, very safe, etc. Mineral spirits, yeah. totally okay. Um, the only thing I would say is if when you're considering what you're cleaning up your press with is what you're using on your rollers and whether that's okay. So like you cannot use acetone on your rollers. Acetone on your platen or on your ink disc probably not great either but like it's gonna work but it's fine yeah just clean it up um but not good on your rollers i should say actually not acetone isopropyl alcohol oh is that what i'm thinking of okay so yeah yeah. so isopropyl alcohol or ipa you can absolutely use on your ink disc and 
I I still use a quick rub of IPA if I am doing this, if I am cleaning an ink off and then immediately putting an ink back on because the oils, whether it's baby oil or vegetable oil or even the mineral spirits, they all have a greasy component to them. And I've noticed that that greasy component can give me adverse effects on the next ink I'm putting up. So everything gets a quick wipe of IPA. And as long as the IPA is not sitting on your rubber, you're not oversaturating the rubber. If you are just using like a small wipe of it to remove greasy residue, and then you're immediately, quote unquote, hydrating the rubber again by basically putting more ink on it, you shouldn't have degradation. Okay. Yeah. I had Zach walk me through that because I was like, (laughs) yeah, he is the expert in this field. I was like, tell me why this does or does not make sense. And he was like, you're fine. Technically, isopropyl alcohol is going to break down your rubber, um, but it requires like saturation and time and like all this other stuff. So there have been times where I've accidentally doused the rollers in IPA just from sloppy pours, but yeah. <laughs> that was an accident and I paid for it. Yeah, literally. Okay, so last question uh from Sweet and Southern. Uh the garage floor. So she asked, How can I protect my garage floor from uh all the oil and everything? So you can always get an oil pan, depending on the size of your press. Uh they make them for like Heidelbergs, for floor models, for cars. Like you could probably like use something you can buy at your like local hardware store. Um, so you can always get an oil pan. I would say at a minimum, you could just put down like oil underneath the parts that you're oiling up or even you know paper towels to absorb it and saran wrap like whatever you want to use as depending on your aesthetics <laughs> and how serious you are about it um you know there are options yeah. when I had the press in the living room I just assumed that the press was going to be way more messy than it was it almost never drips anything there's nothing liquidy on the press even the oil you end up putting such a small dab which was one of your questions so the answer is a very small dab um like a little drop um you're putting such a small amount in there that like all you need is a paper towel in your hand you're gonna like swoop it up um The only thing that might drip down is if you're getting excessive with your cleaning solutions and and those drip. But to be honest, they usually drip on another part of your press. But anyway, what I did is I took – they have um, these really thick plastic sheets at Lowe's or Home Depot, uh, I think maybe for construction of some sort. Um, You could also buy a plastic shower curtain. And what I did is I put that plastic down on the floor and then I put a really cute – a sisal rug on top of it and then I cut the plastic so that you can't see it so then it was just sitting on like a really cute rug and then in my garage right now I didn't do that because I was like what do I care about this garage for but I was starting to get a little excessive with my um, (laughs) cleaning solutions and they were dripping on the floor so one day Zach just put (laughs) a piece of cardboard underneath it and surprise surprise nothing nothing has dripped on that cardboard since so it's just like a car Uh, sitting in your driveway right like yeah you you could put an oil pan under it if you want to but a piece of cardboard will always do (laughs) yeah yeah there's literally a piece of cardboard right now yeah yeah 
So there we have it. Um, Hopefully, if you had any of these similar questions or maybe you just enjoyed our banter about different letterpress topics, um, (laughs) we would love to do at least one or two Q&A episodes a season. So keep your questions coming in. Again, they can be specific to your press as possible or whatever. And then if you are troubleshooting anything on your press, Mariah and I have really enjoyed um, helping out our listener. Yeah, with with figuring out why their ink is it's just looking like they're over inking even though they've done a lot of adjustments so we've enjoyed that and yeah we're very excited last next week is our last episode of season two yes we are wrapping up season two with our beloved Kara Jo Knapp of Knapp Design Co um we will be ending the season on a high note with her which is amazing and then season three is going to be super fun you guys so um in late September we're going to be starting season three off and we're going to be calling it the 12 weeks of printmas uh we are ending season three around the holidays so we felt like you know what Jillian and I both love the holidays like a freakish amount so we're going to just like celebrate all the way up until the end of the year. Um, it's been a long, busy year for all of us stationers and all of us printers. So I say we celebrate and we're going to call it 12 Weeks of Printmas because there will be some giveaways. Giveaways. So excited. <laughs> yes. Every week there's going to be an opportunity to interact and to score some uh, free things. And we're just really excited to keep doing this and keep bringing you guys some letterpress content. And we're really looking forward to season three. Yeah, this will, I mean, we're almost to like the end of the year, which is crazy. And that will mean an entire year's worth of Hot Off the Press, um, which is (laughs) mind boggling. So yeah, thank you all for being here. And so look forward to next week's episode with Kara Jo. We can't wait to tell you all about it. And we will have so much fun to uh, share with you all. And I'm sure there will be much laughter and much silliness and we can't wait. So yeah. Yay! Bye!